So we have today, I've tried, I integrated some uh, slides that show the historicity of what happens here. You may not be able to see everything you could have uh, had the wedding not been set up, but we lowered it as far as we could. Idolaters protest the gospel. I covered this last week, but I'll do a quick review. I'll read Acts 19, 23 through 25. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together, the workmen of similar trades, and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. Now, what I shared last week, for those of you who weren't here, was this is what some scholars call a type scene. There are scenes that in Acts that show how the gospel's progressing and some of the things that typically happen. Some of the type scenes are leading somewhere to a really big one, an important one, and the same sort of things happen. So last week I pointed out in Philippi there was one that happened, and I'm not going to read the whole thing because I need to keep making some progress through this because what's really important to me in the research for writing about the definition of the church from the scripture is in Acts 20 about what sort of authorities are validly in the local church. But the one in Philippi is Acts 16, and there things happen that are very similar. They drag them into the marketplace. These men are throwing our city into confusion. They were Jews. No, in this case, it was Christian preachers because they didn't distinguish the difference between Jews and Christians at that time. And the crowds rose up. So that's Philippi. The next one is Thessalonica. Um, And that starts with Acts 17.2. It goes to verse 9. And there they were giving evidence that Christ had to suffer. Paul did. And rise from the dead. Keep this in mind. Every sermon in the book of Acts or speech by a Christian that Luke tells us about that's a good one, it's the right one, not that of a false teacher or someone we're not supposed to believe. Everyone included the resurrection. So any, uh, the ultimate uh, miracle that proves the validity of the Christian gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that needs to be defined properly and biblically and it needs to be preached. And don't assume because some Christianized institution has something in the back of their hymnal that that (laughs) mentions it, therefore, everybody in that group 
believes that it literally happened and that there's a blood atonement and so on and so forth. I found that out myself. The institutional church ends up existing for the purpose of its own self-perpetuation. And that institution, whatever one it is, will eventually have lip service to Christian doctrine, but, ha- but literally have uh, preachers and authorities that don't believe their own doctrines. That is continually, that continually has happened. And part of what led to my conversion was asking questions about what I was supposed to believe when it was time to join the church when I was 12 years old. And I always had friends older than me, and I wanted to question things. That's just the way I am. So I asked the pastor, well, I'm studying science, and so I don't know, how how can I believe that Jesus walked on water? How can I believe that Jesus did miracles? Most 12-year-olds aren't going to ask the pastor that. But I did. And he said, well, those things didn't really happen. People back then believed in those things, but we know better now. The stories are there to inspire us to be better people. And I didn't really say anything because who's a 12-year-old? I didn't feel bad that he said that because I didn't believe the stories myself. I didn't believe I wasn't a believer. And I, I thought to myself, well, I think I can be inspired by something other than a story that wasn't true. When I was converted at age 20, which would have been eight years later, when I was a student at Iowa State, when God convicted me of my sins and I knew it was true, I knew immediately that what the Bible said was true. Now, the evidence points to that anyhow. Why would pastors say these are stories? I ended up asking four different, three or four, let me see, one, two, three, yeah, four different pastors in that same liberal denomination. And they all said that we weren't expected to believe that the Bible was true because they were rationalists who had been trained in the early 1900s and they were taught that um, you can't expect modern people to believe in miracles. So that already was possible. See, the false teachers in the church are always behind because by then the orthodoxy showed up and after that uh, the eastern thinking. So everything's a miracle. The, The whole world's infused with deity But at that point, it was rationalism. And so why do we have religion? To give us springs on our buggy so we have a smoother ride through life. Well, I thought I could take the bumps and nuts to religion. And uh, we didn't have that good of springs on our tractors back in Iowa anyhow. So here, they're living in a world that the supernatural was part and parcel of their worldview, and rightly so. However, 
their hardness of heart would cause them to cling to whatever they're used to. And I think the, the greatest evidence of hardness of heart, both of Jewish and pagan people in the ancient world, is the resurrection of Lazarus, which isn't the same as the resurrection of Christ. Lazarus died again. But that was a sign and appointed to who Christ is. The Gospel of John lays that all out. So what happened to the religious leaders when Lazarus was walking around after being raised? They wanted to kill him. They're more interested in their political power than having a Lazarus walking around. And so one sign, Jesus said one sign will be given to this wicked and perverse generation. Which one was it? The resurrection of Christ. That is the definitive sign. And anyone who looks for the evidence and sees it, and it's there, is there, has seen the one sign that will hold all people accountable on the day of judgment. Christ was indeed raised. It's not so we can have a nice uh, Easter, whatever. It's a historical event, but it isn't about the institution, religious holidays, fun, bunnies, eggs, uh, all of this stuff. If it all went away, if there was no institutional church, you still have the resurrection. You still have accountability, and we're going to have to face it. Now, the spirit world has always been there. And so when you see the things that go on, the deliverances and things we've talked about, and then this whatever the ontological status of Artemis, there's certainly demonic spirits. Was Artemis what they claimed? Certainly a false deity. However, this was a, a business and it was a deception and people will cling to their traditions, religious traditions, no matter what. So accountability comes from what God did in Christ. Therefore, these type scenes, Philippi, Thessalonica, now Corinth, but the ultimate scene happens starting in Jerusalem in Acts 21. So keep thinking about that. We got to move forward. I want to get to Acts 20 and 21. 20 defines authorities in the church. You may be surprised that the authorities in the church are way less than what people think. You basically have the pastors, elders, and um, Episcopals. The deacons are servants, but not authorities. So they're all the same people. There's no bishops. There's no district superintendents. There's no archbishops. There's no popes, cardinals, whatever we call it. This is my claim, and I hope to write a book about it. Uh, Translocal authorities during the church age that come to some other church. They're not apostles as defined in the Bible. They're not prophets as defined in the Bible. And they say, I'm the authority in this group 
wherever it may be, you must do this because I say so. I'm the bishop. There's no bishops. So some may say, well, you're teaching sedition. No, I'm teaching the authority of scripture and a priesthood of every believer. Well, I'm the prophet of God, therefore you must do this. No, I don't have to listen to you unless you can prove to me from Scripture that it's true. The authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer is what God has given to you who believe in Christ so that you will not be abused by false authorities. You can appeal to Scripture. And so the noble-minded in Acts did what? They searched the scriptures to see if these things would be true. What were they searching for? The claims of the apostles. What were the claims? That Jesus came first as a suffering servant. Because their first question is, if this is the Messiah, why didn't he defeat Rome? Why was he shamefully crucified? Why did he suffer the way he did? How could this be our Messiah? All right? What's another claim? That's proven in the different sermons. What's another claim? He was raised from the dead on the third day. Is that in Scripture? Yes. Eric preached about this recently. I preach on it. What's another claim? Psalm 110, verse 1. He reigns at the right hand of God from heaven until he comes and brings the judgment later because they want to know what judgment. Rome is still oppressing us. And the temple was still standing. So we have our temple or we have our synagogues or we have Rome, depending on who you look to. So who are we accountable? Directly to Christ. And he has spoken once for all in Scripture. Yes. I don't want to get all hung up on this bishop thing and all this and that. But but didn't when Paul and Timothy got out of prison, didn't Paul send Timothy to Ephesus as an overseer? And he was correcting them on doctrine. So isn't that a similar right. type Paul role? was an apostle appointed by Christ who actually had that authority. Paul was a translocal authority. The, the debate, I'm, I'm, by the way, uh, someone is going to fail me to, as part of a documentary about the New Apostolic Reformation. Paul had the authority to do that. I'm claiming there are no apostles after the manner of the original ones on the scene of history today. That's my claim. Yes. I had a similar question that Brian has because 1 Timothy 3 says, this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Okay, but that, that translation is inaccurate. Um, Bishop is episcope, if I remember right, which is word for overseer. Um, I'll have to give a preview of this. In Acts 20, there's three words to describe the people who came to meet with Paul. When he came back from his Macedonian trip, he goes to Miletus, I think, which is just south of Ephesus. He calls for the elders. The elders come. You can look at this in Acts 20. Good question, though. Thank you for asking it. Um, the, when they got there, the same group, Paul tells them different things, one of which is to shepherd 
the flock. Eric's looking for it right now. These people are called elders, and presbyteros, uh, overseers, uh, episcopi, and then she, to shepherd is a verb there, uh, which would be a pastor. But they, that's the same group. There wasn't some archbishop somewhere to come over the institutional church. I understand that I, I'm a, in a tiny minority. I don't believe the institutional church that perpetuates itself over the centuries with all of the things that go on was ever God's idea. The church is an organism. Everyone who is joined to the head, Jesus Christ, is part of it. And the local gathering under the authority of Scripture is the biblically defined church. And if we have an issue, we don't send someone off to district headquarters in another country or another state to see what's right or wrong. We, uh, we, we go to Scripture to see yeah, Eric, did you find those? I, I didn't find all of them, but um, I was going to just mention what you had already. There's three terms that are used interchangeably in the New Testament. It's poimen, which is the pastor. It's presbuteros, and it's episcopae. And all three of them are used interchangeably for elder. Sometimes it may be rendered bishop. Sometimes it may be rendered overseer. Some, sometimes it may be rendered pastor, but they're all interchangeable. And we know this. Um, I've done a message years and years ago where I'll show where the same criteria for the elder is given in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, and these terms are used interchangeably. So it's, it's, we don't want to make a false uh, divide between those three terms. Otherwise, we're going to be thinking there's three different offices when they're not. They're the same people. They're just used by... So, for example, the Episcopate, Bob gave a whole message about how the term visitation... That's the root of the idea is that the episcopate, what's being emphasized there is that these are people, overseers, who are visiting the people of God while Christ is away. Uh, The poimen, the shepherd, is the one who is shepherding the flock while the good shepherd is away. So they're just different emphasis on the same person that is the pastor. What's very interesting is Bob is going to be refuting modern-day apostles. Is it an interesting in Titus where Paul says to, to, to... Titus, who is going to be, he's the pastor at Crete, he says, make sure you appoint, does he say appoint apostles? No, he says appoint elders in every church. Well, why didn't he say appoint apostles? Why in 1 Timothy 3, when we look at church leadership and in Titus 1, do we have criteria for the elder and for the deacons, which Bob has said rightly that that is not an authority position, but we have criteria for them. Why don't we have the criteria for those who are going to be appointed apostles? Because we have apostles once and for all laid. Right. So you're not going to be appointing apostles. Therefore, the church doesn't have to worry about appointing them in all the churches. You're going to appoint elders Christ, pastors. Yeah. So anyhow, I, I hope I can do an adequate job in this video that they're shooting. It isn't just me. They're going to have different people talking about it. Now, having come from that movement myself and spent years, what it boils down to is that the modern-day apostles and prophets that are not just functional, I mean, functional in the sense of a missionary, apostello means to be sent, to sent from. People are still sent. 
And they, in the, one of their apologists said they realize that that's a valid category. They have a third category that's part of the fivefold ministry. But here's the problem with the third category. They don't have to be inerrant. They don't have to speak bindingly for God in a way that can't fail. And you can't judge them based on scripture because their utterances are things that scripture doesn't tell us. Okay, so if a prophet says God is judging America because, well, I wrote an article about one who did this, a prophet who said God's judging America because we haven't kept the Sabbath law for the land, commanding all farmers to not farm at all every seven years. Israel never kept it. But based on that, a prophet says in the fall of 2015, judgment's coming. Probably. But it didn't happen. Now, my question is this. If you ask the people who, uh, whether it's the New Apostolic Reformation, C. Peter Wagner, uh, Mike Bickle, um, Bill Johnson out in Reading, or the Hillsongs movement in uh, Australia, they're everywhere. In fact, one guy admitted that you can go somewhere and have 50,000 apostles in their country. Okay, so, or, or prophets, whichever it was. But here's the question. Are there decrees, speeches, utterances, binding and infallible? No. So they may be wrong. Can we judge them from Scripture? Well, they don't hold to the idea that the categories in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18 are still valid. In Deuteronomy 13, if a prophet or a a person who does a sign or wonder, and it comes to pass, but they say, follow a God that you didn't know. So that would apply to William Branham. William Branham was Jesus only. But according to testimony, more miracles happened around William Branham than most anybody else. But he had a faulty doctrine of God. That that goes true to a lot of others. Others have claimed that something is going to happen and it doesn't. So don't listen to them. God didn't send them because he's bringing judgment because you don't want to listen to God. So the definitive sign is the resurrection of Christ. The message of the church that we preach with binding authority and God will honor it is the gospel. That if you believe in Jesus Christ and trust him, if you flee to him, turn from living for sin, self, in this world and believe in Christ, your sins are forgiven and you have eternal life and you're honoring God and you're safe. That's, I say that with the abiding authority of scripture. Not because of who I am, but because of what God said. So that's what I got to talk about. So there were real apostles. So we have different categories here which this one guy admits. They don't, they don't claim they're writing scripture, and they don't claim they're just functional. Not, I don't mean dysfunction as issues. 
just functional in the sense of being sent or preaching the gospel. They claim a third category of the fivefold ministry, and therefore there's some other sort of continuing apostle, prophet, and what that is is having authority over churches other than local churches and going and people are supposed to listen to them. And from my experience, it all boils down to one thing. They claim, whoever it is, including the group I was in, that their leader hears from God beyond Scripture. And he said over and over, whoever hears from God has the authority. And by definition, he heard from God. Anytime somebody questioned the leader, he'd come into town, preach a sermon on Korah's rebellion, and saying, God's going to judge you because you're rebelling against God's ordained spokesperson, which would be the guy who hears from God. But how do you know it's from God? It's not in Scripture. So that's what's at stake. Artemis. Okay, go ahead. We want to talk about Artemis. Go ahead. Yeah, before you get into Artemis. um, Paul and I just had a discussion this morning before Sunday school. Could you, in this same vein, in the same subject, in the same topic, can you explain... um, Go into all the world and make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the of, of Jesus and all. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah. Right. Could you kind of explain that in lieu of that passage? Yes. The, I wrote an, a scholarly article on that uh, that we have published on critical issues under the scholarly, uh, refuting dominion theology. There's key passages that are taken, that being one, by those who are post-millennial, or dominionists, and they take nations, ethne, to mean geopolitical units. Okay? And so, and others take go, which is not an imperative, but it may have imperative force. They're saying go means change of, of location. That would be like YWAM. And I've not, I've spoken, taught Romans at a YWAM because people deserve to hear Romans, even if the bigger group has some problems. But here's the deal. Go, they say, unless God tells you to stay where you are, you're disobeying God unless you go somewhere else. That's not what that passage is saying. It's addressed to the apostles, and it's ensuring that the gospel goes to everywhere and doesn't just stay in Jerusalem. And then you have a Trinitarian, Trinitarian formula uh, that we use. This is, there is no concept, and we can learn that from this Artemis one, by the way. None of the apostles believed that it was their duty to rule over civil authorities. They did not believe that. They didn't take up the sword to Christianize a geopolitical entity. They didn't do it. When they tried to take up the sword, they're rebuked. Are you going to preach on that today or another time? Another time. Okay. Uh, and it's in, but the Great Commission in Matthew is taken to mean what is seen in church history. I guess it's salient right now because of the, what's going on in the UK. And some people didn't realize that a monarchy, at least in a figurative sense, is the head of the church. 
Did you know that? And that has come up recently. Now, functionally, it doesn't work that way now. But that started more way back, way back. Constantine Christianized the empire. How can you be a Christian if you're not born of God? How can you serve God, love God, honor God, and preach the gospel if the reason you're a Christian was you're born in a certain country to certain parents? Does that make you a Christian? No. Is there a Christian nation on the earth? Has there been one ever throughout church history? Eric and I have been saying, no, it's never happened. Why? Because the geopolitical entities are there under God's providence as laid out in all the way back to the time of Noah. Once those geopolitical entities have no status, the next thing is Babylon. Why do they want to rebuild Babylon? They want to reach into heaven. Why the Artemis? This is a good segue to Artemis. Why was Artemis so great? Well, her image fell out of heaven. Since the day that God drew out boundaries, and they, they, they move, but there's still boundaries. Right now, ours is pretty uh, shabby. <laughs> but, but God ordained boundaries. You can't enforce church discipline within a geopolitical entity. Okay? Geopolitical entities aren't Christians. Aren't Christian. They're part of God's providence. And the church always exists of a gathering of those who are born of God, the authority of Scripture, priesthood of every believer, as we come to him directly. There's no mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And we just did uh, CIC radio. There's someone that wants the mic over here, Carly. Um, We just did a radio show on this. Every time you have modern apostles and prophets, you end up with new mediators. And they get revelations, and they know things that we can't know because you couldn't get it from Scripture. Go ahead. So the left is screaming a lot about Christian nationalism now. They're yelling and screaming about that. Maybe they have a point. If Christians are going to take over America, under whose leadership will that be? Um, So maybe there is something to fear about Christian nationalism and how that would look. Well, there's one uh, view of history, American history, that suggests that that's always been the battle. And the question is, are we going to have a social gospel nationalism or a militant dominionist nationalism? That's a view of American history. But we have, I publicly said, that man cannot obligate God to a covenant that God didn't first initiate. If someone wants to refute that, I'm open to evidence, but I don't see any. Every binding covenant created throughout the Bible was initiated by God. Two humans can make a covenant with each other. And 
however that works out, that happens. But is what happened with the found with the Puritans was they made their compact, and Jessica and I did a radio show on this, and they said, if we land safely, God's agreed to this. Okay, so that would mean there's a covenant with God. There was no prophet from God agreeing to the covenant, but they instituted it. And because God allowed them the land, that proves that God agreed to the covenant. Now, is there a single covenant in the Bible that worked that way? How about the covenant with Abraham, Abram, who initiated it? Was Abram in Ur, the Chaldees, saying, no, I'm sick of this place. Maybe I'll go somewhere else. No, God did that. What about with Noah? Who initiated that? God. What about with Moses? Who initiated it? God. What about the new covenant? God. And so throughout history, people have made decrees claiming certain things. But it's part of providence. So what we have to do, beloved, as we live in this world, and by the way, providence contains good and evil. And the, the thing that bothers me is Christians thinking that providence is a cop-out. And that's dishonoring to God. It's hugely dishonoring to God. Because during the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, they knew they didn't have a prophet. There's, some of the Jewish writings said, We'll sit this here until a prophet arises and tells us what to do. During that time of those 400 years, was God's purpose going forward? Did anything happen that God predicted? Sure, how about Antiochus Epiphanes and the different things that Daniel's 69 weeks, these things happened, but they didn't have a prophet. Providence isn't a cop-out. It's a comfort to Christians. The reason I preached on Romans 8 again was that the people that don't like Romans 8 are Christians. Literally, somebody debates, well, I don't know what it means, but it can't mean that. God can't be in charge. God can't be carrying us. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Wrote an article about it. Those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. That's where the false teacher that was in charge of our group got inspiration. Whoever hears from God, hears from the Spirit, has the authority. So you have miracle guidance stories. God told me this. I went there. It happened. It worked. Therefore, I'm Moses. I'm the man of God. No. The word ago means carried, brought or carried. So the article I wrote is called Carried by the Comforter. Is the Holy Spirit... Less uh, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God the Spirit, bringing us, where do we go through? Bringing us to glory, sanctifying us, carrying us, ensuring that we get to glory, protecting us, and getting us to the right place at the right time, no matter what happens, without us gaining a new revelation. Is that a deficient doctrine of the Holy Spirit? That's what I was told by my old uh, 
friends in the shepherding movement. We need somebody who hears from God. And it always happens to be the guy with the biggest clout and the most impact in that group. And so I won't get to the right place at the right time with the right message used by God unless somebody tells me, you better go here, not there, even though in my liberty I could go either place. I do not believe that. I don't believe that I survived almost dying five different times and so I could still be here and teach. That's God's providence. It's not a failure. Has anybody ever told you if you get sick, you failed? You're not hearing from the Spirit? So don't let that happen. Let's go to Artemis here. I got 20 minutes. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying, here's his doctrine. Gods made with hands are no gods at all. Is that true? It's true. Does that mean there are, there are no spirits in the world? No. Does it mean there are, I'm not sure, I can't prove that there isn't some demon named Artemis. Maybe. That's not the point of this. Even if there, there are, there are spirits, there are demons, there's principalities. Prince of Persia, Michael, we see that in Daniel. But none of those beings have the status of deity as defined biblically for the creator of the universe. All spirits, be they angels or demons, are created beings. So God is eternal, non-contingent, all-powerful, not part of the universe. We don't believe in panentheism. God is in everything. And he holds all things together by the word of his power. How is it that planet Earth is here and some meteorite hasn't wiped out all life and it isn't because Bruce Willis stopped it, whoever went on the, in the movie. Because God's ordained that we're here, that church history will go forward until the time of the end when judgment comes and the things prophesied yet. So whatever the ontological means or being status of these various beings, they're not really gods, only in the sense of being allowed to exist because we haven't got to the final judgment. But they sure make a lot of money for the idol makers. Here is something that never goes out of business, making idols. Have you got your candles yet? Have you seen those candles that they were selling? Fauci on it? Am I supposed to say that? Well, I just did. They literally were buying these, and that'll do a lot of good. The incense, the... People are superstitious by nature. And they're afraid that something bad's going to happen. One thing we noticed in researching the apostles and prophets and some of the word of faith people is the idea that all that matters is what happens in this life. If my child is sick, I will do anything, some people say, including going to a known false prophet, if that will help. 
If I have a physical problem and I need help, I will, a lot of people will literally do just about anything to find help. And that's why I taught on, late, lately on um, Luke chapter 5. Why does it say in Luke 5, there, the power was available to heal at the very beginning? Power was available. I think it's Luke 5, 17. Why say that? We already knew that. Read the whole pericope. Because when they brought the lame person in, Jesus says, now if you're a first-time reader of Luke, well, power's available. Here comes the lame person. Resourceful people got him lowered down right in front of Jesus. He says, your sins are forgiven. What? I didn't come here for forgiveness of sins. I'm lame. Who are you? But what does it say at the end? In order that, that's a purpose statement, you may know the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins. Arise, take up your bed and walk. And he was healed. The healings aren't an end of themselves. The lame guy healed dies again. Forgiveness of sins is eternal. It takes a miracle for anyone to believe that forgiveness of sins is more important than whether other things happen or don't happen. I never would have believed that were it not for God's work of of a miracle in my life. And people literally have said recently that they were willing to believe a lot of things hoping for a miracle. They realized that what's more important is being saved from the wrath of God. Are you safe? Do you know, um, you get old enough, you realize that decades aren't very long. I told her one grandson, I used to think in years, now I think in decades. 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. They all have their unique thing. When you're 20, you don't think in decades. You're thinking next year, 21. If you're, if you're 17, next year, 18. If you're 15, next year, 16. It's going to be forever. I'll never be able to drive. Okay, I'll show you some of my... Yeah, I got to drive, but, you know, looking back, I don't know if that was a smart idea for the authorities or not. Um, we only see part of this. They're having a wedding, so they're all set up. I'll read this caption. This is from my collection that I bought. This marble portrait shows a silversmith making a small cup. Silversmiths did much business with the religious sector, making items like the shrines mentioned in this verse, as well as idols, jewelry, household utensils. This artifact was photographed. Here's another one. This silver cup provides some idea of the work silversmiths were capable of in the time of Paul. This cup was photographed. It's in a museum in New York. So this is the kind of thing they did. The exact shrine of Artemis is an is an extant. They haven't found one because silver's worth money. When they somebody found it a long time ago, they melted it down, sold it. By the way, gods made with hands aren't gods at all. The golden calf should tell us that. Do you think the Israelites literally believed this is your God who took you out of Egypt? They all came out. They didn't believe that. 
They just didn't like the one who did because he was very threatening and ominous. The golden calf isn't much of a threat, as we found out when uh, Moses grinded it up and put it in Aaron and made him drink the water. Artemis was an immensely popular goddess in Ephesus. The temple in Ephesus dedicated to her was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This artifact was, artifact was photographed at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. So a certain man, this was a statue depicting a deer sacrificed to Artemis. Notice the snake. Can you see that? Most houses in Pompeii and other cities featured a shrine that usually is called a lararium. They held figures of lares, the garden deities, to watch over the house. Here's some other silver statues from the ancient times. Snakes are popular. Deities. The residents of Ephesus serves, served, it says, a plethora of gods, all of whom were devised by human minds and crafted by human hands. Isn't it interesting? Go, yes, go ahead. Why were snakes popular? Why was what? The snakes. I, that's very interesting. There were serpent deities, and we think snakes are creepy, but somebody will think the snake has some hope and help for them. What did Leave listen to? The serpent? Yeah, Mary. Well, that's a good point. Um, look at all the people who pray to Mary and do the rosary and all that. And I've said this many times. I don't know why Roman Catholics lay aside all reason and rationality and think several things that are absolutely absurd. I don't mean that to be prejudiced. Many people that we know, about half of our congregation are people that were saved out of Catholicism. And there may be people who believe there, but they don't, who knows? It's, they, until you get out and get real fellowship, you're just lost in the system. Listen, who can hear the prayers of millions of people simultaneously? God only. Who can answer the prayers of people? God only. Is this apparition that people saw Mary, the sinner saved by grace, forced to be put under that kind of scrutiny? No. That is blasphemous because a saved sinner doesn't float around and appear to people and receive worship. Now, what about sinners being told they have to say so many our fathers? Is the privilege of praying to God who loves us and cares for us and hears us and is omnipotent and omniscient. He can hear prayer, answer prayer, loves us. He sent his son who intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Is it punishment to pray? No. So what kind of a doctrine says 
you're a wicked sinner, you're punished, so you do this and you do that. Why are those who are enslaved in this Romish, godless system deceived by it? Why wouldn't they even ask the question? Well, what have you heard back? I've asked it. A friend of mine from the 80s went back to Rome. They loved this family tradition, the feelings, the shrines, the incense, the all the smells and bells. And so there's temples and artifacts and figures and practices that appeal to people that if you stopped and think, think about it, is absurd. Mary can't hear anybody's prayers. Now, I'm not saying I, my background was better in some ways because four different ordained ministers say, say God never did any miracles, that I should be a good person and not even though the Bible wasn't believable, that's absurd too. That's why I quit. That's why I left. But when I was converted, I wanted to learn more. Now, these are a plethora of gods. Hey, Bob, look at that middle image there. What does that remind people of? The middle image right in the middle of the slide there. Yeah, it looks like the Statue of Liberty. Um, oh, it's interesting. No, the Statue of Liberty is according to these occultists, is Apollo, um, which is a wicked deity, which is not at all what people think the Statue of Liberty is. I mean, it's deeply occultic and deeply wicked, according to some of these people. Well, as a matter of fact, the biblical definition of the church is very simple. It's a gathering of people in the name of the Lord under the means of grace, primary being the teaching of the Word of God. And when we say authority of Scripture, priesthood of every believer, that's why we have the mic here. No one has authority because they have a pulpit and a mic and can't be challenged because anyone can read the Scripture and maybe have a better reading. We need to be held in account that we did the study and got it right or maybe missed some important applications. Now let's, okay, we did that, we did that. Oh, this is what was left of that before um, some renovations and things that happened. But Seven Wonders of the Ancient World, Temple, Temple of Artemis. Here's some more of it. This is what a reconstruction would look like. The first building that I preached in when former group that we used to be part of that ended up here, and then we had a party of the ways, and now we're meeting here. <clears throat> the building we were in on 24th and Nicola was an old Christian science building. One of the people who were saved when the group that I was part of was there when we broke off from that other movement, Ministers Are Teaching the Bible, was a lady who had gone there when it was Christian science. And she came to Christ, her and her husband came to Christ and came now as Christians. But the architecture is very much like the House of Representatives when you see what it looked like in the pillars and style. Oh, there we go. New verses. Here we go. Well, the point is, Christians can meet anywhere. Is there somewhere that God won't hear us because we're meeting 
in a backyard, a home, here, synagogue now. Wherever we meet, if we gather in faith, God's here. So what did they hear? God's made with hands and no gods at all. Uh Uh-oh, we're going to lose a lot of money. When they heard this, they were filled with rage. They began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This sort of uh, local folk religion or uh, passion based on identification as a people, it doesn't have to be sinful. For example, um, yesterday there was a football game, Iowa State versus Iowa, and there was all this... And I went to Iowa State, and Iowa State won for the first time since 2014. Not that I was, well, you know. But that sort of thing is sports, whatever. But when it's your religion, now we got, we got a huge problem. For some people, sports is religion, and that's a problem. Um, they're filled with rage, beginning crying out, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. But see, the greater rage is going to happen in Luke-Acts. Jerusalem's the focus. I hope you can see this. This will revolutionize how you understand Luke-Acts. Luke-Acts is about, more than anything else, Jerusalem, the suffering of Messiah, his resurrection, and the Great Commission given at the end of Luke and in Acts, and this is heading toward Jerusalem. Now, the Great Commission says Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. So we may think, if that's the scheme, which it is, that's where this is heading. We know it is, because Jesus appeared physically again to Paul and told him that he must testify in Rome. So he knows where he's going to go. And they tried to dissuade him from going to Jerusalem. But he must go there. Why? Because this is, I believe, to fulfill the purpose of Luke Acts, that Jerusalem now has these things hidden from her eyes, and that the church is not going to be modeled after temple Judaism, but more like synagogues, which was a gathering around Scripture. So there were those who wanted Jerusalem to be the head of the church and that the temple was the key place, but that, was, that destruction was prophesied by Jesus himself. And it was necessary that Paul go there, and he did so doing things that normally he would never do, taking a vow because there was this claim that he brought a Gentile into the temple precincts where Gentiles weren't allowed, and that led him to testify before kings. So read ahead. That's where it's going. Jerusalem rejects everyone's sin. Now, that's not the end. Now are you restoring the kingdom? No, that's later. God will still bring a millennial kingdom, but not until after judgment. So they're filled with rage, filled with confusion, 
rushed with one accord into a theater, dragged Gaius Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And so they were filled with rage, zeal, and they venerated Artemis. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, I got one minute, the disciples would not let him. And some of the Asiars, who were friends of his, said to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. Think about this as we learn. Think about Acts 19, Acts 20, Acts 21. In Acts, others urge Paul not to go to Jerusalem, but he does. Here they urge him not to go to the theater in Ephesus, and so he does it. Why not go here, but do go into Jerusalem when the same thing happened, they urged him not to? Because Jerusalem has to go through this on the way to Rome, and ultimately the Great Commission goes forward. The Great Commission doesn't stop in Jerusalem. That's the point here. So, Asiarchs were municipal magistrates who were responsible for civil affairs. One more thing. In this case, they were eventually successful. Luke Acts portrays civil authorities that are not connected to Jerusalem in a more favorable light than those who were. Uh, the, the people that rejected Christ had greater guilt because they knew they knew about the sacrificial system. Civil authorities are there. Remember what happened to what happened in Agrippa said, Thou almost persuades me to I'm a King James guy here. Thou almost persuades me to be a Christian. I would do you were too. Not only you, but all else. So that doesn't mean they're good people, but they solved the problem. The problem doesn't get solved in Jerusalem. Where are we? Slide 21. Remind me of that. Next week, Eric will be teaching Sunday school. I'll be preaching. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness, kindness, mercy, and grace. Help us to search the scriptures, love one another, preach the gospel, and honor you, and help us learn what we need to learn and encourage one another and listen to your word as we can understand it the best we can. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.